This is Play by Playcast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play by play guys. For play by play guys, by I'm told, a play by play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now, here's the host of Play by Playcast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay. Here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. 97 episodes in this week to Play by Playcast. Welcome back in, everybody. Thanks, as always, for the subscribe, the stream, the download, the rating, or review if you get the opportunity. This is the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. My name is Joel Godet, and housekeeping, you can find the podcast on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter, at PXPCast, or at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T, or you can shoot me an email, jgodet, J-G-O-D-E-T-T, at bsu.edu. Got a couple more this week. Uh, always love when you guys reach out um, twofold. One, to me, just because it's nice to know that there's people out there listening. Um, but uh, if you have people that you want to hear on the podcast, I got one of those uh, last week, which was cool. Um, so hopefully that leads to an upcoming episode. Um, if you want me to listen to stuff, like I'm happy to. I don't know why me, but like, sure, you can send that uh, my way too. That That's happened a couple of times in the last few weeks. Um, but yeah, just good to know you guys are out there. But the, the second part of that is not just to reach out to me, but if you like what you hear on the podcast, reaching out to the people that are on the podcast as well, uh, just to let them know or, or further pick their brains for your own purposes. Usually we mention at the end of the interview, whatever their social media handles are and best ways to hear them or get in contact with them. Um, you can just usually quote tweet, you know, the, the, the tweet that sends out the podcast episode every week. Uh, let them know that you, you listened and, and enjoyed it and, and got something out of what they had to say. Because uh, I always feel like it's good that the people that come on the podcast know that they were a part of something that like is like exists. It wasn't just like them on the phone with me for an hour. Uh, <laughs> I didn't just like rope them into talking to me. Uh, they were actually on some sort of show. So I, I think it's always cool when uh, people out there listening um, let our guests know that that they got something um, out of the episode as well. Uh, before we get into today's episode, two couple of uh, personal notes for me. Uh, number one, I found out last week I'm going to be broadcasting tennis next week. It will not be a first for me, uh, but it will hopefully be a first that goes well. Uh, I, I did tennis for the very first time, I think, four years ago. may have been five years ago. Um, and aside from being like the first thing I did professionally on television, it was, I mean, it was ESPN3, but like somewhat like produced television, like web, TV to web broadcasting. Uh, I, I did it on like 30 hours notice. <laughs> so I didn't know anything about tennis. I didn't know anything about the teams and I was solo, which also was an interesting endeavor. Uh, so I'm excited to like advance in the, the realm of tennis broadcasting uh, from what got put forth last time, uh, this time with about two weeks of preparation. I uh, had a phone call this week. You know, we talk on the podcast so much about how you prepare for sports you're unfamiliar with. Uh, that has come in handy. Had a phone call uh, this week just asking questions about 
Like, what do I need to be aware of? What are terms I need to use? What are terms I need to stay away from? What are rules I need to know? What do I need my analyst to know? And how do I get that out of them? What are the right questions to ask? Uh, so it's it's been an interesting exercise in putting a lot of those conversations we've had on the pod uh, into practice over the last couple of days and certainly looking into next week as well. So that'll be exciting. I'll let you know how that goes. Uh, maybe next week. No, not next week. It wouldn't have started the week after that. Episode 100. We'll talk about tennis off the off the off the top of it. On another note, uh, last night was broadcasting Ball State baseball. The Cardinals went on the road to Bloomington, Indiana, to take on the eighth-ranked Indiana Hoosiers or seventeenth-ranked Indiana Hoosiers or anywhere in between. College baseball has six poles, which is five too many, maybe four too many. Uh, but they went on the road, took on a top twenty-five team, and is always. One of, if not my most favorite broadcasts of the year. Certainly my most favorite baseball broadcast of the year. Because tip the cap to Indiana University, they do a really nice job in terms of their production around baseball. Phenomenal facility. People go. They get into it. They get free Chick-fil-A at, like, intervals of strikeouts throughout the games. They're always going nuts, very schadenfreudistically, schadenfreudistically um, for the other team to strike out. Like, it, there's just a fun atmosphere. Yesterday they had an organist. Uh, Luke Gillespie, who was a professor in the music school, um, he, once a year he plays organ. Um, happened to be last night, so that was kind of cool. Had a neat throwback feel to it. Uh, but I always get really excited for the IU game. And last night I had a really long time to be excited about it uh, because Ball State and Indiana played 14 innings last night. Longest game for the Cardinals since 2012, and we don't have records of it, but I... I would gamble it's one of, if not the longest game time-wise in program history. Because I was on the air last night, solo, for 5 hours and 34 minutes, with a 10-minute pregame show, and the game started 5 minutes late, so 39. I was on the air for almost 6 hours. Solo. Last night. It was an adventure. I actually had a, a former player because it was cold. It was 30 degrees by the end of the game. So I had a former player and a couple other people in the booth with me. Just They were trying to stay warm, and I had people to talk to. Nobody at home knew, but I'm like looking around the booth, entertaining the audience. Um, then I came to realize, because I, like, I, I didn't do an out-of-town like major league scoreboard. I actually didn't do an out-of-town scoreboard the entirety of the game, for even college baseball. But, but then I got home and found out I didn't even call the longest baseball game in the country last night. <laughs> that was the West Coast. The White Sox and A's went five hours and 48 minutes. Jason Benetti played Sox math twice, I found out. Um, and then uh, the Indians and Twins went five hours and 13 minutes in Puerto Rico in a 16-inning game. That was still going on when the Ball State game ended. Just a wild night for baseball. I will say this from a broadcast perspective. My scorebook only goes to 12 innings, and I have a thing. Like, when I get to the 12th, most people would, like, flip to the next page, and they'll start again, you know, start in a new score page. It looks clean, fresh. You can just go normally. I don't do that. I just continue in the 12th inning, assuming the game will eventually end fairly soon. Like, in the 13th. Like, I'll go one more inning. How many more batters can there be? Well, yesterday... <laughs> Indiana, like, continued to load the bases or put two runners on in every inning and extras without scoring. 
um, didn't score in the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, or 13th. Finally, you know, won the game in the 14th. Um, so I just continued scoring in the 12th inning. And there's pictures on my Instagram, just Joel one, um, of my scorebook. I, I just continue through the 12th inning and I put a line to indicate where the 13th starts and then a line to indicate where the 14th starts. Turned out to be a really horrible idea. Um, because by the 14th inning, like there were people that had like three at bats in the same box and I didn't know what was what. I should have just started a clean page. But it got to the point where I was like, here's Logan Sowers. I think he walked last inning, but it might have been the 12th. Hey, <laughs> I, I was just kind of trying to figure out my chicken scratch as we worked into the night. Thankfully, I, I did say if it went to a 15th, I was going to start a fresh page because I didn't really have a choice. Next time, <laughs> I think I'm just going to jump to the next page a little bit sooner. Talk about prep and charts on this podcast all the time. There's a little insight into my total lack of organization when it comes to mine. All right. Anyway, let's dive into today's guest. Ken Daniels of the Detroit Red Wings. Since 1997, he has been their television voice. And Ken was actually uh, put on my radar by a friend of the pod, Len Casper. When I had Len on a couple of months ago, he actually reached back out to me after his appearance and said, hey, I think you should reach out to Ken Daniels. Uh, He'd be a really good guy to have on. And he gave me Ken's phone number. And I didn't act on it until I knew I was going up to the Detroit area. Uh, As a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago when we did this uh, episode, um, Ball State was on the road taking on Eastern Michigan. So I was in Ypsilanti, which is, I think, southwest. It's definitely west. I think southwest uh, Detroit. Um, So I called Ken Daniels. Cold called him. Just picked up the phone and was like, hi, my name is Joel. I do a podcast. Len Casper gave me your phone number. Uh, Explained what, what we do here. And he said, you know, sure, he'd be happy to do it. And uh, we agreed to meet at like a Starbucks up by where he lives, um, which was not particularly close to Ann Arbor. (laughs) And I was like, you know what, I'll get there. I wound up renting a car um, because it was cheaper than an Uber. Uh, I think it was like 30 bucks. Really not a bad deal. I kind of pat myself on the back for that one. Um, But instead of meeting at a Starbucks, when I reached out to Ken the day before just to finalize all the plans, he said... I met him two days before. He said, uh, why don't you just meet me at my home? And I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. Uh, here's Ken Daniels, uh, who got reached out to by me, who he doesn't know. And, uh, and he invited me into his home to, to do this podcast. So I was, um, you know, so it was, it was cool. Um, I, I felt weird showing up with nothing. So I stopped at the corner market on the way. And I picked up uh, some chocolate-covered pretzels, not realizing that it was still Pesach. Uh, so I brought something that was not Pesach. Uh, <laughs> I think it was the last day of Passover. Um, oops, one Jew to another. I, I, I boxed that one. Um, but, but still, uh, walked into Ken's home. He's got a marvelous home. And we sat down. And uh, his dog makes an appearance in this podcast. And we just talked. And this episode as far as content goes for like an hour and 10 minutes when the conversation starts, it's one of our longer ones. Uh, but then once I hit, you know, record on the back end of it, hit stop on the recorder, uh, we kept talking for a little while. Uh, I think I spent about two hours start to finish, uh, at Ken's home. And he was more than gracious with his time, more than gracious with the interview. Um, and he was, he was just awesome to talk to and awesome to interact with just on a human level. Um, so it was a lot of fun. 
just from my my personal uh, perspective. Uh, what we will get into today, uh, we will start with kind of his. What we will get into today uh, is a lot, very wide ranging conversation. Uh, Ken came out with a book, and you can find it uh, bookstores everywhere online. Uh, it's called "If These Walls Could Talk: The Detroit Red Wings," and I felt like if the guy's gonna if he's going to welcome me into his home to tape this podcast, I should probably read the whole book. Um, and I did. Uh, I, I read the entire book, downloaded the ebook, read it on my phone uh, the week leading up to the interview. And uh, we talk a lot about some of the things that are in the book and kind of expand on some of the stories of his career and some of the experiences of his career. Uh, we talk about his son, uh, who, if you watched E60, not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before, his son, Jamie Daniels, who passed away about a year and a half ago now uh, because of an opioid addiction and um, what, surround, what surrounded his son's death and the, the tragedy of his son's death because there's a lot more to that story than just a, an opioid addiction and, and taking of his life because of that. There's a very complex tapestry to it, and, uh, I, and, and Ken has made it a big part of who he is in his life right now and, and who he is and what he does outside of broadcasting. Um, and I wanted to, to talk to Ken a little bit about that, and I wanted to talk to Ken about kind of who Jamie Daniels was too, beyond the son of the broadcaster or the, the son that died, the broadcaster's son that died. I, who, who else was he? And we talk about that at the end of the podcast as well. So we do get into the, the serious side of things um, toward the end of our conversation. Uh, but where we start is something that is in the book. Ken talks in the very first couple of chapters about his introduction to sports broadcasting, growing up in Canada and being exposed particularly to hockey, uh, all of his idols broadcasting. And um, what struck me was his detailed recollection of what made those broadcasters good and interesting at a young age. Like where Ken was 9, 10, 11, 12 years old and was listening to broadcasters um, call hockey in Canada and like really had these detailed explanations of what attracted him to them and the way that they called games and how that resonated with him. And I just thought it was interesting the way he phrased it. Uh, so I wanted to start with him talking about how he fell in love with this industry and this craft based on those experiences at a young age that I think most people wouldn't have. You know, most of us growing up listen to sports on television or, or on, on radio and we say, well, that's cool. I want to do that one day. Um, but don't necessarily look at it as like, like I could tell you that I thought Bob Murphy and Gary Cohen and Howie Rose were good, and I enjoy listening to, to the Mets. Um, but I couldn't have told you growing up what, like, why, like, why did I think they were good? Why did I think they did a good job? What made me fall in love with listening to those guys? I don't know. I just thought they were good. Um, but he was very specific about that. So I wanted to ask him about that off the top. And that is where we start on a pretty wide-ranging conversation with Ken Daniels this week on Play by Playcast. That's a great question. I wish I'd put that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I guess at an early age, for me, one for play-by-play, it was probably just the sound of the game and the fascination um, from watching on TV on the few games that were on television. And then to hear Foster Hewitt or Dan Kelly on the the radio and just the, the speed of it, the inflection of the voice, the sound of the voice, just took you there and painted a picture. So that was from a play-by-play perspective. But listening even on radio late night for sports scores that you couldn't get or being in Toronto, if the Toronto Maple Leafs were on the the West Coast or had just finished a game and I wanted to hear an update about the game and it's 11.15, I'm in bed and I have my little transistor Panasonic twist radio and just listening to Dave Hodge and just the tone of his voice, I guess, the inflection in his voice, the conciseness of what he wrote. Um, it, for some reason, just resonated with me, and I, I wanted to hear more. It fascinated me. So um, probably being into sports and just having played hockey at the age of eight, and, you know, kids today start at two and three. So I started a little later and wanting to know more about the game and anything about it. So I guess in part it was probably always hockey, and he delivered it, as far as I can remember at that time, and hearing sports scores where now they're instantaneous, obviously, for years. Um, but just getting that and go, wow, I'm hearing all this and all this is going on and he's delivering it. It was, and he just did it so wonderfully. And up until recently was still doing it the same way. The thing I thought was cool too, and and just particularly with how your career arc went. Um, and you even mentioned that you never worked in the minor leagues. You, you, you burst onto the scene, um, from a hockey standpoint in, in the NHL. I mean, you started with the Leafs, um, but very quickly wound up working around your idols and around a lot of those guys that you grew up listening to. Um, how did that help craft kind of who you were as a person and as a broadcaster when, you know, not, not necessarily from day one, but very early on, here's the people you're listening to. Here's the guys that you liked. And now all of a sudden you're around them and they're informing you, uh, kind of directly and professionally. I think I asked a ton of questions. I always did. Um, I think one time Scott Metcalf was my news director at, uh, the radio station in Toronto where I first started said, nobody ever asked more questions than you. So I guess, and I tell kids, you do want to ask, you want to learn. My, my dad always said, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Only people who, you know, think people are stupid for asking it or something like that. But I guess, you know, you, you tried to find your line not to bother people too much, but always learn from them. Um, and work ethic. I think when I, Jeff Ansello, through a friend, went to visit at Chum FM in Toronto, and I saw his work ethic and how he put a sportscast together, went down and watched Brian Williams do the sports when I was 17 years old at CBC Television, watched his work ethic and what they did. So it was just sort of ingrained, oh, this is how you do it. So I got to learn from two very good people at that time being around different people in the industry. So I think I just took that work ethic and tried to emulate that because that's all I knew. This is an odd, ignorant question as somebody who no, grew up. there's no such thing as Well, that's fair. Question. That's fair. But, I, well, it's not not a stupid question. It's just an ignorant question. Because <laughs> um, obviously, I, I mean, I've never lived in Canada, and I grew up in New Jersey, and I, I grew up with the SPN and, and all of those things. What was what was growing up in Canada like from a sports broadcasting standpoint? Like, what was available to you um, that you, you latched onto at a, at a young age um, and watched in the medium that you were able to, to take in? I mean, I... And I know it's a different country, but it's like it's that far away. But what what were you exposed to, um, I guess, beyond hockey or beyond what we would see in Sports Center and things of that nature? 
Well, in, in, in hockey, I grew up with a lot of losing, and I realized how that happened because it was the Maple Leafs. So I, <laughs> I don't know if I got used to that, but that's one thing that I don't know if it became acceptable. Um, you know, it wasn't a, a thousand-channel universe back then, right? We had channels two, four, and seven out of Buffalo. So I saw a lot of fires in the Buffalo Evening News and thought that's what news is about, a lot of fires. So that, that was the Buffalo Evening News, and we had Channel 59, Cable 7, was a new wave station in Toronto, which was coming on board, and they did things differently. And then there was your standard CBC and CTV. Really? The dog rang the bell to go outside. Now we have to edit. <laughs> We're leaving this in. This is good. Jack Daniels is going outside. <laughs> Yes. His name's Jack Daniels? His name is Jack Daniels. Yes, it is. So how we'll get a better name? Look, see? Well, I knew it was Jack. I just figured that the Daniels was coincidence. No, Jack Daniels. Well, he was named Jack. Jack Daniels was just too perfect to pass up. I had a previous <laughs> dog named Puck. But Jack Daniels was just too good. And for my son, Jamie, so the letter J. I went to the pet store, actually, for Jack the other day. And the, the lady looks at me, and he's registered there. And she said, you must get teased a lot about your name. And I said, what are you talking about? She goes, well, Jack Daniels. I said, no, that's the dog. <laughs> it's not me. Or I would be, maybe. At any rate, back to your question. So growing up in Toronto, I guess I got used to a lot of losing uh, because of the Maple Leafs. But we didn't have a lot of channels back then. So you had your 247 out of Buffalo and you had a new wave channel 57 cable seven, which did news differently in Toronto. And then you had your standard CBC and CTV, which were the national news. So, you know, sports came on at uh, six o'clock for five minutes or so. And you'd see a feature and they'd go down to Maple Leaf Gardens. And I watched how they did those pieces and they'd rerun them at 11 o'clock. And this was Brian Williams, who I ultimately wound up writing a letter to and he responded. So that was really all I knew. The newspaper would come, not in the morning, but the newspaper came at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I couldn't wait to get it. The Toronto Star at that time, before the Toronto Sun became a morning newspaper. So I'd read the Toronto Star and find out how the Leafs did on the West Coast when their game ended at 1 o'clock, and you'd got the scoring summary the next day, because I'd fallen asleep by that time, and hadn't seen the score nor the end of the game. So can you imagine, you know, it's the late 60s, early 70s, you, you, you didn't have it all back then, the way we do today. So I, I grew up, my dad used to say to me, he, I'd read the sports section from cover to cover, and I guess I did, and I knew all the athletes' birthdays. I could still tell you Bob Nevin, who I grew up watching, was born on my birthday, March 18th. I don't know, I'd seek out players who were born on the same birthday as, as me. It was, um, it was just a different time. It was a simpler time. And you're really outside of playing with friends outside. You didn't have the video games. You had nothing else to do. But maybe when, when TV came on and there was something you wanted to watch, you gathered around to watch it because it wasn't there all day long. So, and reading newspapers late. So that's what you did as a kid back then. You didn't start in play-by-play, -play, though. Once you got into media, uh, you've done a lot of different things. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you started doing um, and not getting content in that and still chasing and pursuing the dream of ultimately doing what you do now. Yeah, and, and, and the strange thing is, Joel, I, I don't even know if my goal was play-by-play -play as much as I was fascinated by it. I think I also wanted to host Hockey Night in Canada. I wanted to be a part of it in some way. 
And starting out in the business, I just wanted to be on the radio. Again, going back to age 10 or whatever it was, radio just fascinated me and the sound, and that's what I wanted to do. And probably, unlike my two brothers who became attorneys, knew that I maybe didn't have the, uh, the acumen to do that. So I figured, you know what, follow it. And my parents never discouraged me. I'd be reading the newspaper in the bathroom out loud, and my mother would come by and make some joke like he's practicing again. I remember one day she walked by me and she said, your name's in the newspaper. And I said, what happened? Did, did I die? And she said, yes, you did. A Kenneth Daniels. And she's the only one who <laughs> called me Kenneth. But somewhere it was in the newspaper. So that was the first time my name was in the paper and it wasn't even me. But my parents never discouraged my dream. They let me, you know, do what I wanted to do. And uh, when I was in university, York University. I had a, a short-lived cable show called MTHL Weekly. It was the Metro Toronto Hockey League. So I just went to the cable company and said, hey, can I do a TV show? And they were dumb enough to say, yeah. They didn't care. It was a, a time filler. So I went in their studio, only lasted a couple of shows, but it was fun. It gave me that experience. I wish I had, you know, that was even before VCRs or beta, sorry, in 1980. So this would have been late 70s, mid to late 70s. I wish I had a copy of that. Somewhere there was a cassette tape that my dad put up a cassette recorder, if you can imagine, to the television and recorded the show. Damn, I wish I still have it, but I don't. So that was really my first start even being on TV and looking at a camera, but I'd watched so long Brian Williams doing sports and others on TV that I just sort of thought I, I could do this. So my, when I first got into radio, it was more doing anything, overnight news, and then political beat. And then they threw me into City Hall. I was a City Hall reporter, Queen's Park reporter, which is the provincial politics, like states in the U.S., provincial in Canada. So I, was, I had an office there at Queen's Park, had an office at Toronto City Hall. Crazy. What did I know about news? Not much. But I'd listen enough to try to be concise and get a story in a concise fashion, put it together, made a lot of mistakes. I had patient people in the newsroom teaching me. And I just knew versatility would be key, Joel. If you can be versatile, I knew enough about sports. They said, hey, the sports guy can't be here. Can you do the sports cast? Sure. So probably I was just too dumb to know any different. You know, one of the things you said in the book, though, that I thought was interesting on the news front was... And there were times that you even joked that, you know, you'd, you'd leave the meeting, you'd come back, you'd get the Cliff's Notes and do it. Um, and some other reporters would say, what the heck, your story is better than ours. Yeah. Um, but the reason was you were trying to explain something that you didn't even understand to people that also don't understand it. Uh, how did that skill set translate? Maybe the answer is it didn't. But if it did, um, how did that tr translate to kind of what you do now and being able to explain anything to anybody? Well, first on that one, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> don't let details, as my broadcast partner, Mickey Redmond, says all the time, don't let facts get in the way of a good story. I think I learned that at an early age, long before I ever came with Redmond. I've been doing that since 1980. So, yeah, I used to, I, they used to bore me listening to politicians. And that's why today I've got no patience for it. So maybe it was the time sitting through those meetings. Maybe, you know, I'm thinking about it now. Maybe sitting in those meetings said, get to the point. Just get to the point. What, you're, you're going on and on and arguing. Finally, I just left, came back, and asked somebody what happened, and there it is. That's the crux of the story. So that's maybe why I love play-by-play -play more than I did doing the news or anything else. It just happens. It's fast. You get there, and you're, you're just lost in it. But again, 
watching and and seeing scripts that Jeff Ansell wrote for radio. So you've got a four minute radio block timing. To me, people in, in our business, radio is key. And I guess maybe this answers your question a little better. The conciseness of it. You've got a time period. I used to be in the car driving and, and listening to songs. I try to hit the post. You know where DJs hit the post yeah. and the music stops? Right. I'd be driving in my car doing that in my head. No, if, even if I'd be imitating Jeff Ansell on Chum FM saying, you know, it's 14 degrees downtown. And now here's a Bruce Springsteen super session on Chum <laughs> FM. And you try to hit the post just like he would do. And I'd be imitating his voice. And to this day, I still know him very well. And our families are close. So even that was little practice in the car, just finding things like that, just to brevity. Um, and as I learned later, doing what I do now with people in the business, if you can't ask a question in eight seconds, at least in our medium, that seems to be eight to 10 seconds, don't ask it. So, and let people, if you're going to ask a question, let them answer it. Don't, people don't necessarily need to know what I know. You're asking, you have a guest there, ask the question like you're doing very well. I feel like I have to time myself on my questions now. Oh, don't worry. This, <laughs> this is long form. This is where podcasts are great and you're just shooting the breeze. It's nice. Um, when did play-by-play become, uh, you said it wasn't necessarily initially the goal right out the shoot, um, and maybe it didn't become the goal, maybe it just happened, but when did it, when did it become the goal or something that happened? I guess play-by-play for me really happened in 1988 in Seoul. Uh, I was doing canoeing and kayaking and baseball and everything that I'd never done before. And they asked you to do basketball, but you, no. you weren't comfortable with basketball, but canoeing was fine. Yeah, I'm five seven. <laughs> Never played basketball. I just got stuffed. I've been in a canoe before, so that'll work. But that was the greatest experience for me coming back from Seoul in '88, and I wasn't very good. I was just learning. I'd been with CBC. I'd been on television. I could do the stand-ups. I knew enough again about play-by-play or sort of that I thought. But I came back, and Alan Davis, who was starting the fan in Toronto. And at that point was uh, still at CJCL radio and I'd worked with Alan. He was my boss and I came back and he critiqued my, my work in Seoul. And he said, you started up here as I have my hand toward the ceiling. He said, and where did you go? You'd know where to go. You left yourself no room. It's called inflection. And you were so hyped up, which I was because I was nervous and probably too excited. So maybe even from that day learned, take it easy, take a breath. You've got room to breathe, literally. You've got room to breathe here. So when that 5,000-meter canoe race started, I was up here when it started. I had nowhere to go. So let the game breathe. And that was really, he said, you know, and he went over tapes with me because I had them recorded. And we went over tapes, and I thought that was a great lesson. And then I was 88, and then just over a year later, he called and said, I need a replacement for Toronto Maple Leafs hockey. Now, my goal at that point was still to do Hockey Night in Canada and hosting, but I'd done play-by-play now, so I thought, okay, I, with his lesson, I could do it. Never done it before. I was moving the next day. thought, boy, I'm busy. He goes, seriously, get someone else to move the ottoman. You're doing Toronto Maple Leafs play-by-play. Now, think about that. No minor leagues, no Ontario Hockey League, nothing. And he had the faith in me to say you could do it. And I did. And the rest, as they say, is history. So I caught a big break. Um, You didn't watch that tape back, though. 
for the longest time, did no, you? Listen, listen to that tape? No. The radio game? No, I didn't until I got the job in Detroit. So that would have been from 1990. I got the job in Detroit in 97. And I said, you know what? And I was very excited. And I got the job in September of 97 to come to Detroit. And I thought I'd never listen to my first game of play-by-play. I'll go listen to it. And I thought, oh, this won't be good. And I still have it. And it wasn't bad. It wasn't great. But I thought it was a lot worse than it was. You know those moments where even today in TV and you screw up and you think, oh my God, how bad was that? And it was three seconds and you thought it was a minute of agony. But no, the game wasn't bad. A lot of things I could do better. And I sound so much different today now that I've gone through puberty than I did then. <laughs> it never like, you never had that itch afterward. Like it was, was it one of those where you just kind of put it away and it's like... It, it happened and, and let's move on or yeah no i think i got the itch no i was scratching a lot at that <laughs> point and then uh and then the next year alan said i'm gonna keep you for you know 10 to 15 or whatever it was where joe bowen who's still the voice of the maple leafs and great and that was the, all the affirmation you needed yeah yeah the next year yeah i want you for 15 and then i was hosting hockey night in canada at the same time so again i had that that national stage for hockey night albeit hosting which gives you rightly or wrongly it gives you credibility that you're in the hockey world sure. doing Maple Leafs games. So that helped. So I'd done that for two or three years. And then I had applied for the job with the Vancouver Canucks, having now done 40 or 50 NHL games. And um, I was one of the two finalists from what it led to believe, although I was never really a finalist because if Jim Houston wanted the Canucks job, which he ultimately took, it was his. So he did. He took it. And at the same time, John Shannon, who was coming over executive producer of Hockey Night in Canada, said, I hear you're up for the Vancouver job, don't go. I want to bring you from radio to play-by-play on Hockey Night and out of hosting for the most part. But you need to leave radio because I don't want any bad habits, was his phrase to me. Because, you know, the descriptiveness of everybody who touches the puck on radio. And I got that. And as it turns out, the Leaf radio rights were gone to another station within a year anyway. So that's, again, it was just a break where I'd met John only a couple of times, but he liked me enough through meeting me and obviously listened to the tape, whatever tape he listened to, and gave me a chance. So as I talk about a lot in the book, and I, I know you've mentioned it, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And to me, it's so true. You prepare all your life, not necessarily for for that moment but when that moment arises you have the confidence to do what you do because if you can't do it they're going to find out pretty quickly or you probably shouldn't have said yes but in your heart of hearts you know hey I can do this so was I lucky yeah I got my job on TV because I had no food at home and went to a Blue Jays game and ran into somebody who said CBC's looking for a replacement host well, okay, but I thought in my mind everything I'd done to that time, okay, I, I can do TV because I'd been through radio. And then you do radio and you host hockey night and you go, okay, I've been on that stage and as nervous as I was, I'd done an Olympics. Okay, I can probably do play-by-play here. That prepared me. So lucky in those moments, but prepared through what you do. Let's talk a little bit about what you do um, from a mechanical standpoint, because uh, hockey fascinates me from a play-by-play stance. Um, I've not done a ton of hockey. I've done gymnastics. I've, I've only done like four hockey games. Rhythmic, um, rhythmic gymnastics? Uh, I, I guess. Oh, not. <laughs> I mean, they, they were in rhythm, what's but that, it was... What's that? What do they call that thing on a I rope? think it's rhythmic gymnastics, the, oh, the one yeah, with the ribbon. On the rope. Oh. They have a name for it, but anyway, carry on. I'll, I'll look it up. We'll do it in the postscript. Um, but particularly radio and television, I, there is so much description, even like when you watch Doc, 
like even on TV, he is so on the money with a lot of things. Um, what is the difference in radio and television and hockey? Uh, and how difficult is it to stay up on the action as quickly as it moves? Well, first of all, radio, you're basically your own boss. And that's what I loved about it. You, you're, you know, it's you and your analyst and you've got one producer with you who's telling you you're going to break. Um, but during the day when I'd be, I was doing two jobs at once. So I was doing CBC television. So I'd be on the air hosting their suppertime sports at 6.20 and then have a car waiting and I get to Maple Leaf Gardens and you're on the air there at 7 to do a Leafs game. So during the day I'd be preparing for both. So I'd be preparing to do play-by-play. So you'd write your scripts, you write your open. I'd be at practice in the morning, get a clip from a guy, put it in here, I can put it in here. Or during the game, he's been in a slump or he changed sticks. And on a commercial, I can go to it. I'm hitting my own buttons. So you're your own producer. You learn just the flow of the game, thinking two steps ahead of the game. At least that's what I did. And I, I think that was great learning for me. The toughest part was probably taking a step back on. I can't get this now. They're going here. There are sponsored elements. Boy, the flow of the game in my head says, run this now. And you can't do this. You're with a lot of other people who are working, and it's just a whole different game, TV to radio. But radio just gave you the feel and the flow and to incorporate what you want and stories. So when I go to a morning skate, which they're going the way of the... They're going out for the most part. But when when you do speak to a player and you have a question or he's in a media scrum and I hear him talking for two, three, four, five minutes, in my head, if there's a story that is compelling to me, in my head, I'm thinking, how can I get this story out in 20 seconds? Because we go to commercial break, you've got 20 seconds to 23 seconds before puck drop. So if I come out and morning meeting, conference call with the producers, can I get this board coming out of break or this shot or go to this guy, then this guy, I need to tell this story, which he may be told over three minutes. I'm thinking in my head, I got to do it in 20 seconds. So I'll go home and I'll make notes and I'll do it on the computer or handwritten and said, okay, and in my, in my book for the game that night, my preparation, these are the point forms again. How do I get this out in 20 seconds? So I'm always thinking brevity. And where can you get this in and weave it? And nobody does it better than Doc. Used to be in the day, you didn't do, you did play-by-play. The analyst, it was 70-30 play-by-play. Now it's almost become 50-50, where the analyst talks, interjects and play, and I don't mind that at all and becomes more conversational. It might drive some people crazy. Some people hate it. I want to hear play-by-play all the time. I don't know. To me, you've got pictures on the TV. After a while, puck to so-and-so, to so-and-so, to so-and-so, to so-and-so, it bores me. I, I don't know if it doesn't bore them. Maybe they do. Sometimes do we go off on a tangent? Hell yeah. Can it drive some people crazy? Yes. Sometimes it even drives me nuts. We go, okay, there's a game going. we got to get back here. I get it. But it's changed now. So preparation to me is key, and I try to think as I'm preparing to every game and every story I'm going to tell, how can I get it in without getting in the way? How much storytelling do you do and how do you best do storytelling uh, during the flow of action too? Or is that pretty much where you're on your play-by-play game? You let Mickey do what he wants to do. That's where you do your 50-50 split. Um, and when play has stopped, pretty much that's when you get your green light. Sometimes, but you know, it's different now, Joel, because there, there's not the same time when they brought in the hurry-up face-off. I don't know whether it was seven, eight years ago, whatever they did, where the ref puts his arm up on a draw and you'd... I, I listened to old classic games from the 60s and 70s on TV, and my God, there were 50 seconds before they dropped the puck. You could tell 100 stories a night. So I try, sometimes when I'm hearing myself too much in my head, 
from talking about stories, I go back off because I'm wearing myself out. And I hear some play-by-play where I'll hear story after story after story that it wears me out. And I go, oh my God, you got 20 stories here in the first period. So I try to be cognizant of that and not do it. So if I go in with, I only really... I think in any game outside of, okay, maybe, you know, boy, that was a great deal for so-and-so. They got him for a third-round pick where sometimes I go, oh, right, that was... So to me, if I'm preparing for a game and I see something, oh, right, that's how they got that guy. If it intrigues me, then I'm good with it. I'm hoping it'll intrigue someone else. You might for five people and ten you might not, but I can't judge what everybody else likes. I have to think what I think is important. Some aren't. I'll go in with six or seven stories in a game, and really that's about it. If that many stories, I'll maybe get three, and I'll know it, and I'll be good, but those three got to prioritize. That those are the ones you want. So that's what I'm thinking, and I'll work with my producers. Can we do this one at a break? Can we do this one on a whistle? And she said, how much time in an icing whistle? Because you've maybe only got 10 to 15 seconds. I go, no, nah, I probably need more. This is a 23 out of a break. So those are the types of things that I'm talking about with the producer. And and if producers are really good, and Mark Askin, who's with Hockey Night in Canada, one of my first producers, and is a terrific producer. And he always says, as he speaks with young producers in the business, he says, give yourself about three years of doing games, and you'll start to hear voices. And people say, what voices? And he'll say, the announcers. You'll start to hear the announcers. Meaning if I'm talking about something and there's a way for me to relay it over a game, or you might say, oh, what a play that was, you know, what a move in the corner and a spin back to make that play up to so-and-so, and then the play carries on. Hopefully the producer is listening, even as it goes to the, for the analyst, that he'll re-rack that yep. and show it on a replay. Or I may be leading into something where, in my head, the flow of the game tells me, this would be good, I want to get to this story. So I may talk about a guy a little bit, and our producers now have caught on, and they know, or it, it shouldn't say caught on, they just know my cadence and what I'm thinking, and, and that's how you become a team, right? Uh, they'll then on the next break go, here's so-and-so, so I can follow up on that story. Mm-hmm. That's what makes a good broadcast to me, is the flow without forcing it. And sometimes that's hard. So I can go in with six or seven stories. If I get three, that's good. And if the game is great, give me one. That's it. Let the game take over. Sure. So you don't carry the game in a briefcase. You let the game go, and you try to work through it. And I think that's what Doc does better than anybody. I liked what you said, too, in regards to working with Mickey uh, and and creating, I guess this goes toward creating a really good team uh, and editing yourself in some respects in those ways. Uh, When Mickey said, remember, I'm the one that hears it first. How did that, I don't know if it changed you, but how did that change your perspective on things because the guy next to you hears it first let's see what's gonna not only entertain me but also entertain him and if i go two for two i'm probably hitting a home run yeah for sure and and mickey and i talk about it and i have i think it's the the confidence that mickey enjoys what i do and i enjoy what he does and and that just develops a good chemistry so i think that's important it's always funny when he says that i hear it through my ears first but really he's hearing it as everyone else does and he jokes about it but if it's okay with him then then it's okay and he's not wondering what i'm going to say next he'll follow on me although i often wonder what he's going to say next i i never know where he's going with something and that's the beauty of it is is just the adaptation that we each do with one another so um i try to find stories that will intrigue him too or you know we don't i i don't tell him stories i'm doing before the game 
if the production team has stories and it's pretty basic, like even last night we had a game we are going to show Carey Price and, and Mickey didn't know we had all the Price footage from the standing ovation he got for passing Jacques Plante as the all-time uh, games played goaltender for Montreal. Mickey sort of started to mention it over play and I put my hand up just so he could see and I gave him a thumbs up so that he knew we had it later. So he sort of ended it, and then we went to it, and they follow along, and here it is. So it all works great. There's a lot of hand signals there, so a lot of a lot of talking in the booth that goes back and forth. This is probably 20 years in the making, but how did you develop that rapport, and how long did it take you guys? Um, I'm sure, obviously, we all think we're comfortable working with a partner, but how long did it take till you were truly comfortable working with a partner on a regular basis? A couple of years, I think. Um, it was uh, it, it was a change for me, and it was a change for him too we we both had hockey night in canada in our background i came from hockey night where it's uh, still probably 70 30 or 80 20 during play where it's play by play as opposed to analyst uh when i came to detroit i quickly learned okay it's 60 40 now from 80 20 it's a little different maybe went to 50 40 or (laughs) or 40 60 (laughs) not sure some nights but uh so it was adapting and you know and mickey would get really excited in the holy jumpings and over goal calls which could you imagine if you talked over a bob cole goal call you'd be in big trouble so that wouldn't happen on hockey night and never did so it was a little different where i thought boy this is new and i was maybe irked a few times early now it doesn't matter. It's just excitement, and you live and learn. You grow up, and you sure. go, God, other things matter in life than that. But it probably took a couple of years. Just not that I was peeved about anything, just getting used to one another in the inflection. And then when you start hanging around away from the rink and you just finish each other's sentences, it, it's just a friendship where you can sit in a room with a buddy you've been friends with for 30 years, and you just know one another. It's that same comfort level. We've been together 21 years. And I didn't know Mickey when I got the job in Detroit, but I, I knew him a little bit just from meeting him three or four times. But it was Dave Strader, God bless him, uh, who came to me in Buffalo and said, they're, they're making a change from the guy who replaced me in Detroit. Mickey wants me to let you know um, that they're going to make a change. Get your tape in. I only met Mickey a few times, but obviously thought, okay, seems okay. He's obviously heard me a few times from Hockey Night. Okay. And so it was probably on his recommendation. So I knew going in, at least he thought highly enough of me. So that probably helped too. You've obviously worked with a lot of other guys other than Mickey in your times with the Red Wings as well. Uh, What's it like cultivating those relationships? Not just because you're working with somebody new, but it is then such a drastic change from what you almost fall into a comfort zone of working with. Um, So how do you change that up? Is it an interesting challenge, a fun challenge for you? And and how do you get those guys... uh, acclimated to sometimes doing this if they're on the newer side of it too if they're on the newer side yeah i try to help if they ask you know i always tell them i'm here and as going back to our you know stupid question things um ask you know um and interesting because you know i worked with brian boucher for the first time we were to do games a couple of months ago for nbcsn but I had a conflicting schedule and didn't, so we just did two at Little Caesars. And working with him was great. Great guy. I met him in the morning. I said, you just do what you do. No, I'll step back. You just do what you do, and I'll call and whistle. You know, so it just makes it easier. I don't need to be front and center in those things. You're here in your all game doing play-by-play. You know, if there's stories and you're more comfortable with the format, he does more games with NBCSN than I do. So just follow his lead, and it just seems to work fine, I think. 
I, I work with Darren Elliott. I work with Chris Osgood on our FSN broadcast. When Mickey's not there, it's different because everyone is different in how they do things. So I'm probably more over-prepared with stories when Mickey's on because he'll go more game analytics. Uh, Darren Elliott is more in tune probably with the inner workings of rooms and players who are in there. So I know I don't have to do as much. So I know Darren will probably have more on players on whistles than Mickey might where I could lead him in and he'll follow on it. But Darren can take the lead on a whistle. So I joke with him sometimes, said, ah, I'm taking the night off tonight. You know, so Whistle will go and, and Darren will take it. And Ozzy is, is just that, that personality that Chris has that you want to try to bring out and keep his energy up uh, within a game. Because Ozzy's, Ozzy's funny. When he, when, he, when he wants to go and he'll, he'll speak his mind too. So you just try to get him situations where he can do that. So you know what? To, to me, working with different guys is a challenge for me too. It keeps me on on my toes what's it like working with former players that you have broadcast um you know one of the things that clearly comes across in the book is obviously the reverence that players have for you as the voice of the red wings um is is there i don't know is, is it weird in some respects is there someone like a like a father son or, or mentor type role where these guys walk in the booth and it's like i'm doing the game with ken daniels yeah it's weird it, it, it's happened a few times and i'm thinking I'm doing the game with Chris Osgood. Like, <laughs> give me a break. So it's night, nice, but you know what? I also I've known these guys for a while, and when I ga- did games with Larry Murphy, and I knew Larry from Toronto days, and and when we first moved to Detroit, our uh, wives prior to Mulligans for both were good friends. So you know that helped, and Larry sort of took me under his wing as a player, and then becomes a broadcast partner. I knew Doug Brown from when he played. And so, you know, you, you know these guys on a different level. So to me, after a while and as we get older in life and you just learn how to let things go and, and just sort of every day take it a day at a time, it, it's a pretty easy transition. It really is. I, I don't even think about that, really. I don't. I don't. I want to ask you about goal calls. Um, it's obviously the highlight. Um, how much thought goes into it or is it one of those things that just flows naturally for you and... It is what it is, and you, you say what you see. Yeah, it is what it is. I, I, I don't really think about it. The only time I think about it is when I do uh, a national game, um, although it's natural excitement for both teams. When it's the Red Wings playing, you, you try to meet the same level. And I get excited on any goal call. There are some announcers I've heard in, in all sports where if you're the home team broadcaster, and we're the home team broadcasters, are we homers? I guess so. We're paid by the home team. Oh, well. And, you know, as I, I talk about, you know, go into any business you're doing and go in and tell the boss that he sucks and see how long you last there. Well, you, you're, you, I'm paid by the Red Wings, and but I think we're, Mickey will say it if, if someone, there's a different way of saying it, right? So you, I think we're cognizant of that. But when I call a game involving Detroit and another team, uh, pretty much I'll have Detroit. If it's uh, an excitement level of an eight or a nine on a goal call, I try to get the other team to a five or a six, I'm not doing a one, even late in the game. If it's an exciting goal by the other team and they score late, you're not at the same level as you would for a Red Wing score late, but it's got to be pretty close. The game's the thing. It's the excitement of the game. I'm not going to belittle the game. And I don't know, Philadelphia ties it up late and two seconds to go in a game against Detroit and say, Drew scores. I'm not going to do that. I just won't. 
It's not, it's not right, yeah. in my opinion. And if the Red Wings score, yeah, I'll be more excited. And if it's on a national scale and I'm doing the Red Wings versus Philadelphia in a national game, you've got to work at it. You've got to think about it. Now, you're not the Red Wing guy anymore, and you've got to get that level. And sometimes I haven't, but I try to. And when I don't, I'm pissed at myself that I didn't. So the goal call just happens. I think it's the excitement. It's the moment. Um, if it's a seventh goal in a 7-1 game, you're not as excited as you were. I mean, sure. but you just play it by ear. The, the inflection of goal calls sometimes are good. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes you miss it. Sometimes you're telling a story while someone scores and you're ticked at yourself. God, I knew I couldn't get that in there. But we know. We know when we mess up. And then you try not to do it again. You thought you have time, but the game happened so quickly. I shouldn't have done it over play. And you started at the other end, and then there's a quick pass, and you go, oh, I'm caught now. So you live and learn. It happens. Nobody's perfect. I've never had a perfect game and probably never will. It's interesting. You, you mentioned the inflection part of it, and you had even said the 700th goal, I think it was for, for Bobby Hull. Brett Hull. Was Brett Hull. Obviously, Bobby Hull would be. That would be different. Um, much different time period. Um, the 700th goal for Brett Hull, uh, you listened back to and you didn't love. Yeah. Um, what do you, I mean, what do you want it to sound like? I mean, what types of things are you listening for? How are you diagramming the big moments in a game? Um, not that you pre-plan them, like you just said, but um, what's, what's, what should it sound like to listen What should home? it sound like? I'll tell you exactly what it should sound like for me. Dan Kelly, 1987, Canada Cup, Mario Lemieux. The strange thing on that, although Larry Murphy was the decoy, quacking like a duck, he never got the puck. But when Lemieux scores late, the puck is actually out of the net before Dan Kelly says he shoots, he scores, Mario Lemieux. And it's just the inflection. It's just the sound. It's the cadence. It's the patience. It's perfect. Uh, even when, when Bobby Orr scores on May 10th, 1970 to win the Stanley Cup, and Bobby Orr is my hero growing up for the Boston Bruins and uh, against St. Louis in overtime, that famous goal of Bobby flying through the air. It almost sounded like he could have been caught by surprise, and yet he wasn't. So to me, Dan Kelly, that voice, how it resonates with you, the inflection is perfect, and some of Doc's calls are just perfect. It's that slight pause, and then the score, and the excitement, and then letting it breathe after the fact. Don't cram in too much after. It's the simplicity. To me, that, that's the perfect call, and sometimes I get that, and sometimes I don't. How much do you listen back on, and watch back to this day? Uh, how much do you self-critique yourself? Not on whole games. If there are stories that I got in or maybe a story that I just mentioned that I missed because I tried to cram it or thought I had time and I didn't, I'll go back and listen to that. Okay. I record every game. Um, my wife watches the opens to see me and then shuts it off. <laughs> so I can usually tell when it's queued up just past the open that she'd seen it. <laughs> so then I'll carry on from there. I don't need to see myself on camera anymore. But certain goal calls I'll listen to, not all of them. Uh, the other team... Not so much. I know where it is. But sometimes on inflection, yeah, to see if I hit it or did I, did I do that right. I don't listen or watch back as many games as I used to. I did religiously the first three, four, or five years here all the time. And just, you know, how did I play off Mickey here or that and live and learn? And now I think we sort of have it. And again, nothing's perfect. So, uh, yeah, I still do. I still do critique. I think it's important to, to listen and how you can be better. How did you, uh, did you do any training of your voice too when you talk about inflection? Um, I don't know if it was just you sitting down and listening back to yourself and thinking about it, or did you actually 
do any kind of voice training or things of that nature? Just reading in the bathroom. No, that was about it. <laughs> okay. Reading out loud. No, um, good thing for squatty potty these days for young kids growing <laughs> up. You could sit there for, for days. Um, no, I really didn't do voice training. I, I, I think, was I, was I blessed that way or was I meant to do this? Um, that it just came and people say, boy, you got a great voice. I, I don't really think about it. I guess I do. Some do, just because of your great voice doesn't mean you can do play-by-play in, in anything necessarily. Sure. My brothers have great voices, but they say they can never do what I do. And one sounds just like me, has no thought of ever doing it. So there is an art to it. And you'd, I think I practice more than the art than I practice my voice, if that makes sense. Sure. I want to, I know I'm pushing on time here, so, but I, uh, well, in that case, uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to ask about the, the Red Wings recently too, uh, and the differences for you. Uh, the first two decades you're here, they really did nothing but win. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's been like the last two years? And you talked about, you know, where the paycheck is coming from. Um, what's it been like the last two years uh, on a team that hasn't won as much and still telling the story and still keeping up that same energy when the result hasn't been necessarily as exciting as it had been in the past? I worked for the Maple Leafs, you know, before Doug Gilmore arrived. I got used to that stuff. Yeah, that's true. You know, and then Pat Burns and Dougie changed some things over there. So I did get the training ground of losing early. Uh, and And I do remember, although this would never happen today, when the Leafs were really bad and they had traded for Tom Curvers and wound up giving, giving away the draft pick that turned out to be New Jersey for Scott Niedemeyer. So that wasn't good. <laughs> and Tom Curvers is a good guy and he was a good defenseman. But at any rate, he had coughed up the puck at the old Chicago Stadium late in the game. And my analyst, Bill Waters, at the time said, well, I said, I'll tell you this much, Kenny. If Tom Curvers is on the ice in the final minute of a game again, I'm going to upchuck my cookies. I thought, oh, my God, could you imagine saying that today? So Twitter you know, would love you. Yeah. So, you know, we've had some losing. But I, I guess that stuff, you just know you can't say certain things, especially not on TV. But honestly, I don't think much has changed. You know, there was so much winning. There's still good players. The league has changed. The league is closer. You're paying for success where you try to add to a team which they thought maybe missed it by a year or so. You could still add because you get in the playoffs, you could still do it. But I think the league's so close now. Yeah, you just get in, but then you got to read the tea leaves and say, is the team really good enough if we get in? Things happen once in a while. I get that. Um, Carolina Edmonton, I think back to 06. Edmonton beat Detroit in the first round, made it to the cup final. Should they have? Probably not, but they did. So you catch lightning in a bottle on occasion. Um, but with Detroit now, I think your, your, your energy, it's a hockey game. I call a hockey game for a living. I get in for free and get to watch a hockey game and be in the booth with Mick to call it. And it's the Detroit Red Wings, one of the greatest franchises in National Hockey League history. That jersey goes on every night. What could be better? So we're not putting him down. I, I think players, we've said it. We were saying on the air the other night about tanking and, you know, and draft picks. Not that the Red Wings were trying to tank, but talking about tanking and teams. And, you know, two points tonight where the coaches and players want the two points. And I said on the air in our open, as for, um, you know, management and fans, they're saying no tanks. We don't want the points. We'll take the pick. Rasmus Dahlin's available. So it, just the different perspectives. So we can also have fun with that. We're not kidding anybody. We're not fooling anyone that the points matter. So I think you go into every game where, where, where fans aren't dumb. 
you're telling it like it is, but it doesn't mean because the team's playing poorly you're going to trash every player. I don't think they deserve that, and they're not necessarily playing poorly. It's the talent. It's just not there what other teams have. It is what it is. So you call it. One of my favorite questions to ask people, uh, and you write a whole chapter about him in the book uh, with Scotty Bowman, is when they work with iconic coaches, uh, how it challenges them as broadcasters. Uh, we asked Eli Gold about working with Nick Saban, and I, I, I love those kind of relationships. Uh, how did Scotty Bowman challenge you as a broadcaster uh, and make you better in some respects? Well, every day when Scotty would see you, and Ken Holland still does the same thing, our general manager, Scotty used to, you'd walk up to Scotty and his first thing he'd say to you every day, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Because he wanted to hear what people thought and he'd take it. He'd listen to what you think. Not that he really cared what you thought, but in the back of his mind, it was there. And he probably asked 10 people that morning. What do you think? What do you think? Do you ever hesitate that maybe you'd be wrong based on what he wanted to hear? No, what I used to say to Scotty after a while, and I, when we got to know each other better, he'd say, what do you think? And I'd go, you don't give a crap what I think. <laughs> That's exactly what I'd say to him. But you know what? Whatever you think or games the night before or whatever we'd talk about at the time, Scotty had a sling box at the time. You know, now you get it everywhere. And Scott and I had a sling box. So we'd talk about that. What do you think? What do you think? I had the sling box on. And we'd go into that story. And then Scotty would lead you down another path. But wherever he said, what do you think? And I'd say something, I'd then just lay back and let Scotty would tell you what he thought. And I take that, you know, Scotty would sometimes lead you down a wrong path too. So you had to, and he also knew after a while you build that trust where he'd maybe test you on some things and see what you were using out there. And I knew what I could use or couldn't use. One day, Scotty told me he was really ticked about Brendan Shanahan or something and he you know or didn't think because he you get in his doghouse didn't matter didn't mean he wasn't a great player but Scotty would tell you yeah this that I tell you I get a five on three he's not going on the power play if he's not going to move his feet he's not going on the power play five on so you know a five on three shows up and I'm thinking in the back of my head I got a story there if he's not out there I wouldn't say Scotty told me that but I could say Scotty must not be happy with Brendan and knowing I was probably right Five on three comes. There's Brendan over the boards. So it didn't matter. I mean, Scotty, you know, it changes from minute to minute and within a game. Players who played for Scotty on the bench would tell you, he'd say, drapes your lines up. And his drapers got one foot over the boards ready to go. He'd pull his sweater and pull them back. No, no, no. It was always about mass confusion. Players who played for Scotty on the bench would tell you it was mass confusion. Was that part of Scotty's grand scheme? Probably. Keep them on their toes. Think about anything but what's at hand. Throw something out there on the bench that, you know, where he used to say to Barry Smith, where's Gordy? Where's Gordy? He'd look over and Gordy wasn't in his seats at the Joe. Where's Gordy? Where's Gordy? He'd say to Barry Smith. Well, the game's going on. He's worried about Gordy Howard is in his seats at Joe Louis Arena. But the players might hear that. It's just Scotty being Scotty. He'd, he'd throw stuff out. So we, we had a very good relationship. Mike Babcock could be hit and miss. You know, um, depending on the day, but I had a tendency just to get out of the way with him more. I had a better relationship with Bowman, great relationship with Jeff Blaschel, and a great relationship over the years with Ken Holland. And again, it's trust. I know lots that they tell me that I would never use, but you know how to form what you use in a way that'll never come back nor hurt anyone. You can use it for knowledge without using it. Well, and that's an interesting skill too. And I love the quote, um, when your son was told, your dad is a guy that you can trust. Mm-hmm. Um, how long did it take to to reform knowing what you could use uh, and how you could use what you could use so that you can do it in the right way? 
I think pretty early. I, when I was in Toronto, we had Cliff Fletcher, a wonderful man, general manager, and, you know, Pat Burns. It's funny, and I still speak with Mike Murphy today, who's in the NHL office with hockey operations, one of the top guys there. And I remember when Mike was coaching the Maple Leafs and I came back with the Red Wings and I knew Mike from Toronto days. That's early on in my time with Detroit. And Mike said to me, we're at a morning skate at Maple Leaf Gardens. Mike's coaching the Leafs. I'm with the Red Wings and away from everyone else. And uh, I said, Mike, can I get your lines tonight? And he said, I'm not going to tell you. You're working for the Detroit Red Wings. He was serious. And I was taken aback by that. It was almost like, are you kidding me? Seriously? Like I'm going to run to the coaches? And today there's no secrets anyway. I mean, every coach talks to other coaches and they're at their homes if they've worked with them before the night before a game. There's no secrets anymore. But even then I, I told him, I said, you know what? I, I don't, are you kidding? I was like pissed that he actually said that to me. So we were, we were fine. I don't think he ever gave me the lines, but I thought I would never go run to these guys. Hey, these are the lines tonight. Like, who really cares anyway? But there hopefully is that trust. I think he did trust me, but with just a little bit on guard that I was with another team and I was going to use something. So to me, you know what you can use. If, if coaches give you something that they, I'm not going to run and tell our, our people that. You just, you just don't. So you, you learn. You just learn the trust factor. Uh- one random non sequitur question uh, as we get toward the end here. I'm curious uh, about Kenny Cam. If they ever asked you to do it again, would you do it again? I just did. I did. <laughs> the Kenny Cam from the book? Yeah. We just did. I did do it again. I did uh, against Nashville. And actually, I've got a great photo that I was doing the Kenny Cam between the benches. I have a few now. I think Rick Jennerette one day, because the elevator was broken, couldn't get upstairs in Buffalo, threw the helmet on and did play-by-play between the benches. Fred Cusick did it years ago for Boston. I don't know how many have. I did it uh, back in 2006, I believe, against Ottawa. So I was between the benches, working the camera, doing interviews on the microphone, and calling play-by-play. It was crazy, but a lot of fun. That kept you on your toes. So you're putting, taking off the headset, running to each bench once a period to do the coaches, getting a player on each side during the game, and operating the camera. I just did the other game, and P.K. Subban, Nashville, was kind enough to give us P.K. Subban. And he came over, and I've got the Kenny cam, and they've got the wide shot with the play-by-play camera, and they come, and out of break, welcome back here to Little Caesarina. I'm here with P.K. Subban. I start asking him questions, and they took my camera shot. And in my earpiece, my headset, my producer, Mark Isofano, says, would you mind panning up a little bit? (laughs) I guess when I'm holding the camera, you're doing five things at once. And I picked up the camera and I realized I was just at about PK's eyes rather than getting his whole head in there. So I watched that back to critique it. And my camera work wasn't that great. So I had to come up a little bit, but it was okay. I loved it. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work. And play-by-play from a low level between the benches is not ideal because you lose a lot of stuff at the other side. And that's a game where you go with no notes, which is great. Darren Elliott and Mickey Redmond were up in the booth. You're just calling the game and worried about focusing with your camera. But I think that's cool. Again, that's just another challenge. You really don't know what you're doing, but you're zooming in and out. And at one point, I went to pick up the microphone. It was just as the whistle went or was going to go. And I leaned forward to pick up the microphone and I heard crash behind me and Rick Zuber, one of our equipment guys with the Red Wings, when we went to commercial said, holy cow, you nearly got killed. If you didn't lean forward at that instance, that puck came and I missed it because on the near side, you can't see it. I leaned forward and I guess the puck, Zub said, it would, you had stitches for sure. 
If you didn't lean forward, it was coming right at your head. So it was just luck. Luck is when preparation meets opportunity right there. And I just got out of the way of the damn thing. But it was a lot of fun. So I've done the Kenny Cam twice between the benches. Great experience. A lot of fun. Uh, is, is it... Is it almost, I don't know, refreshing to do something like yeah. to do a game with no notes uh, where I guess in some ways you're getting back to the basics and also just having a good time um, and probably trying to walk that line of not having too much of a good time to put out a good product? Well, that's exactly why. And I think to your earlier question about, you know, the team losing and after 25 straight years and two years out of the playoffs, do something different. Um, you need to keep the fans interested. So if they tune in to see that, and that's cool, that's different, they remember it. I think that's the, the, the toughest thing at a broadcast, whether you're winning or losing, is to try to come up with good stories, be inventive, or how you produce it. Whether you come on camera from our set or the set at Little Caesars, do something different, stories, a lot of music videos, whatever you're doing, you try to change it up. So our executive producer at FSN, Fox Sports Detroit, Jeff Bile said, let's do the Kenny Cam again. So it, it was fun. We decided to do it. And what I didn't mention earlier was after on Twitter, um, some fan had posted a picture of me with the microphone in my hand with the Fox Sports Detroit um, logo on it and with the headset on and the camera and had taken that and photoshopped it with me over top of the goal net looking right down at the puck with P.K. Subban and Gus Nyquist behind the net. I thought it was hilarious. So I printed it off, and I'm going to get I'm blowing it up. I'm going to have P.K. and Gus sign it. It's like me right on top of the action, literally. It was very funny. So, you know, a fan took time to do that. So it's that's social media world and kept people interested. Be careful because I feel like P.K. has got the personality where he would suggest that that becomes an actual thing. He might actually, you know what? He was, he was really good. And I didn't see PK coming off the bench and to remind PK, you know, it was like the third commercial timeout or second in the first period he had to come over. So whether he was going to remember my look at the bench and Peter Laviolette standing there and he sees me peeking around the corner. He goes, what? And I said, I need PK. He goes, what? I said, I need Subban. He goes, he's right there. And PK remembered. So he came right over. It was very cool. And that's what I love about hockey players to me to deal with. The greatest athletes. Yeah. They just get it. And if the Americans, they've grown up in that, you know, they're that small fish in that huge pond of basketball and football. And I think they, they realize the grassroots from which they came and the parents who got up early in the morning at six o'clock to drive them to the rink and sit in the cold rinks. And the same thing in Canada where it's religion, it's all about hockey. But I, I just think the players appreciate it. And when I watch those NHL awards and they thank their parents and for doing it and being there, and really it's from the heart and what they've done for them through their careers, yeah. it's wonderful. I don't mean this pejoratively toward any other athlete, but I just feel like hockey players are like the most normal. You watch interviews, you're like, oh, I'd be friends with that guy. Yes, yeah. you would, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah like I, I don't, the walk-off interviews don't tell me much and we don't do as many anymore. I mean, close the gap, get pucks deep. We just got to play our game. I'm tired of hearing that. I seriously am. So if I never hear another walk-off interview unless the guy gets the winning goal and it's all excited the end of the game and it's the playoffs, that's a different story. But in season, we decided at Fox Sports Detroit we don't do it as often. And the players are quite thankful about that too because they don't have to deal with it. And on nights like this where I, you have more of an appreciation for Henrik Zetterberg, who after every game, win or lose, and a lot more losses than wins, that he's there every game to answer and never bitches about it. And you think think he could roll his eyes on many nights and he doesn't and he just stands there and he takes it because he's captain of the team and that's what you do there's no hiding 
And if it weren't Zetterberg, it would have been, well, never rarely lost with Lidstrom. But, you know, and guys before him. So that it's um, it's just what they do. They're, they're just great people. But generally those interviews during games, they don't tell you anything. You know, they just don't. I like hearing from coaches' perspectives, and the coaches are great. When on network games or sometimes on our broadcast, we can get a coach during a game for them to do that. Yeah. And I think we were the first at Hockey Night during the Olympics back in the 90s when, again, Mark Askin asked for Pat Burns in-game and came off the bench, and we did him at the end of the period that had really not been done before, I don't think, in a hockey game. And that started to open up the door a little bit in the early 90s, the access to coaches. And I think that's wonderful. I think coaches are more important to hear from. They set the game plan. Who's not going? They're pretty honest. More than players who, for the most part, aren't going to see say a darn thing except for the likes of Jeremy Roenick, who you loved, and sometimes Patrick Line can be funny, and there are some others, you know, but for the most part, they don't give you lots. How has access changed since you started doing this, though, and how has it changed how you do your job? Well, players now are promoting their own brand, I think, in so much in social media, you know, Instagram, and a lot of it is out there, and that's good, too, because you can follow up on things you may not know, and, and then you can follow up with that story. Uh, the access, when I worked for the Toronto Maple Leafs and at CBC Television, I wasn't going through PR people. I had a relationship with the players. Um, now it's all business and they're training all day and now they're protected and the team protects the players. And it's a, it's a business. It's a brand. A lot of money at stake. Back in our days, if I wanted to, you know, after practice, go skating with Ally Afraidy, which I did, and, and race Ally Afraidy or race Wendell Clark or, or go do Christmas at Rick Vives' house or Eddie Olchick's house with Diana and go to their house and do something, I just did it. I set it up with the players and I said, hey, what day is good for you and I can get you? And they did it. Nobody cared. The PR people weren't giving me grief about talking to a player on an off day. Sometimes... These days, it's almost easier to get guys on a game day. You get out of the way because there are so few off days now, even though they have four days a month, you're not practicing, but you don't want to intrude on their space. Yeah. And we get it with family and with travel now. So it's, um, it's, it's a little different. I think access now is maybe a little tougher um, just because of the grind of it all, sure. I guess. So you, re you respect that too. But I, I just... I think going forward, we need to bring out the personalities of the players more than we do. It's so different now and with more teams and another team coming maybe in two or three years and you see the team twice a year. We come into our building and the superstars of the game, you see them once in your building now. There are so many stories to tell and, for, and so many options now for people to watch. I think they'll associate with the sport more now if they can associate with the player and something they like about the player and I know today players do so much stuff especially hockey players in a, a charitable field that they don't even want people knowing about mm -hmm. when the Sedins signed their big contract in Vancouver and they're now retiring the next day after they signed their deal they gave millions of dollars to the local children's hospital and didn't tell anybody and they said, well, we didn't think we had to. I don't know if their agent knew. And they said, well, the hospital wants to know because that spurs more donations. Yeah. But that's how they are. That's how hockey players are. And what Henrik Zetterberg does and oversees in his foundation. But I think if people knew more about it, even though they don't do it, they don't seek the limelight. That's just who they are. Yeah. But I think we need to tell their stories because it may get people to be stronger tie with them if they knew more about what they did and they are as humans they're not just hockey players so I think we still have to do a better job and access would help with these players to tell their story it's a business and if more 
people are buying their jerseys because they found out a story about so-and-so like something that I liked. Why not? I want to, uh, last question I'll ask you. I, I, I do want to ask, um, about on a personal note, I want to ask about your son a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, obviously when Jamie passed away a year and a half ago now, um, how, I don't know how, what you do as a profession and the hockey community and the hockey family and, and broadcasting hockey helped, I don't want to say give you, I don't know if release is the right word, but a place to go and how you were able to channel what you're going through personally into what you're doing professionally um, and how you kind of push through on the professional side too uh, for what you were dealing with then and, and for what anybody out there could ever be dealing with on a, on a personal side that people don't see. Um and, and how you get through those situations and how you make those work together. Well, you know, to tie it to uh, an analyst in the hockey world, and I read this in, in Sheryl Sandberg's book, Option B, um, the CEO of Facebook, even though they're having some tough times now, um, she lost her husband suddenly and wrote Option B because Option A was gone. So she talks in the book about how and why. How do you go on? And it's funny. We always say to analysts, don't tell us what you see. Tell us how it happened and why it happened. So I can almost tie that into my life. How and why? How do you go on? Well, how do you go on is you've got your family. I've got my wife, my stepkids. My daughter is my why. Live every day for Arlen now. And how do you go on? In many respects, I can turn to hockey because I've loved that from an early age. And you can call a game and you lose yourself for those two and a half hours. There are still times, and I don't think I've gone through a game where I haven't thought about Jamie. You do. But for the most part, no matter on your worst day, if I've got a hockey game to call, you're distracted. So hockey is a great distraction. That's why summertime for me is so tough. Really, as last summer was really difficult for me. I did a lot of reading. Um, Too much downtime. I can golf lots, but I don't get much better at it. So that can be just as frustrating. But um, hockey and the hockey world and when I went through what I went through and the people who reached out to me, it's a wonderful family. Even now, uh, you know, when visiting announcers come in and they'll talk to you and reach out. You know, when something like this happens or any tragedy, anyone and how many through what I'm doing now and through book signings and people who come up to me and had a similar loss in their life through a similar fashion. Um, And even though that feels like family, even though you don't know someone, you have that awfulness in common that you can talk about in the grief and it helps to talk about it. So when anyone wants to talk about my son with me, I love to talk about it. And now my son used to say to me, because I'd be off in the summer, you need a summer job. And he gave me one talking about opioid addiction and the overprescription of opioid medication and the abstinence that has to be taken because you don't know how those chemical receptors in your brain are going to react and you become addicted just like that. And ask Kevin Stevens, former great Pittsburgh Penguin and many other teams uh, who became severely addicted and God bless him turning his life around. And it was just one night out, as he said, in New York and took some opioids. It was game over and you never know. And anyone with an injury or hockey players, football players, doesn't matter what you are. If it's one day, you're, you got to take one. Okay. And then Tylenol three and get off it. You just don't know. And Scott Oak in the hockey world, hockey night in Canada, lost his son, Bruce, six years ago. And I talked with him lots about it. And he uses the phrase, it's nature versus nurture. You can have two kids in the same family brought up the same way. My son, my daughter, my daughter had 
taken some opioids to cure her pain for um, some surgery she had, no problem. My son, it was a problem. You just don't know. So it's abstinence. So I get to talk lots about this now. The hockey community gets you through. The how and why is my family. And you just go day by day, but talking about Jamie every day. And we're starting a foundation, which hopefully in the next three or four months will be up. Uh, JamieDanielsFoundation.org. We're going to raise money to um, help kids vet families who can't afford that first month treatment inpatient, which is very expensive. It could be 10, 15, 20, 30, $40,000 in a home for inpatient through detox to get clean. But then the family needs some skin in the game going forward because now you've got to go out there and live, find a job. Yeah. Once you're clean, it's an everyday battle. And you've got to be with a peer group, not necessarily back home with your family because there's that mistrust there or the questioning. You've got to be with your peer group now and go out and live on your own and you're paying your rent. You need a job. You need to be back into society. How do you acclimate yourself? So this is all things we can do through the foundation to save lives that, as we say, if we only knew, we didn't know a lot of it. Jamie was clean for seven months. And then circumstances in Florida contributed to his death through patient brokering and insurance scam and what we call the Florida shuffle. So he tried very hard, but unfortunately was set up to fail. Took something he shouldn't have. We all know that. But he was also set up to fail. Prescribed by a doctor, Xanax. A recovering addict should never be on Xanax. So he was feeling on top of the world and likely contributed to him taking something in a home that was a sober home that wasn't sober and there were drugs there and he fell victim to it. It's a disease, it's a sickness, it's an everyday battle. So he tried really hard and to those families who are going through that now who reach out to me through Facebook and hopefully down the road as we say we're, we're working on the foundation now, it takes some time. But we're going to get that set up and we're going to raise money and we're going to save some lives. So that's my how and why. Every day Jamie's given me a purpose now beyond hockey. Um, and my daughter to do something else. So we're going to do it. You've said before in interviews that you're okay being the father of the kid who died. Um, and a lot of people probably know your son now as the son of the hockey broadcaster or the, the son that died of the hockey broadcaster. But beyond that, uh, what would you want people to know about Jamie? Oh, God. He was, uh, <laughs> he was funny. Uh, where we're sitting now, I can picture him sitting right there at the, the counter in the kitchen. Um, just loyal as could be with his sister and with family and he'd do anything for anybody and uh, somebody in the early days of Twitter which I'm not on it's just a, a mean mean social world <laughs> so but I do follow it I use it for a resource but I'd never tweet under uh, another name but somebody had tweeted out some mean stuff about me in the early days of Twitter and Jamie found him and went after him so I tell him not to but you know, he was a stubborn kid. So Jamie could be stubborn, but funny. And again, just the loyalty and a great laugh and just love life and kids who just surrounded. He was surrounded by kids all the time. Great friends of his. And that, that day uh, of his funeral in December of 2016 was a terrible snowstorm. And when we had to fly his body back from Florida to make sure it was here on a Sunday because kids had exams at Michigan State on the Monday and they wanted to be here and more than a thousand people showed up. I couldn't believe it. It wasn't for us or our family or anything to do. It was because of Jamie and just those who knew him. And, and God bless the people here because we've only been here 
well, I was 19 years at the time or so. And the people who he knew, he came here when he was four years old. So I had a lot of friends and the friends he made at state. And I'm still in touch with the hockey players that he knew back then, Mackenzie McEachern and Brent Darnell and Matt Berry and uh, so many. Um, he worked for the hockey team for a couple of years doing their video there and was a student manager of the hockey team. So he made a lot of friends and the basketball players at Michigan State. And when they, you know, when there was a party at the frat and Jamie was front and center, uh, of that for sure. Um, so, but you know, kept things quiet there and we didn't know what we found out later was an issue that started with the frat in Michigan state. And we didn't know to what extent it was. And, uh, and who knew when a kid would ask you for, you know, you thought he had enough money and he'd say, can I have $25 or I need, I need 30 bucks in here. And the problem is they're, they're looking for opioids and that's the cost of an opioid pill. You're there. And then when opioids, or it starts with Adderall, which Jamie was on, which we don't think he ever needed, and it starts on Adderall, and it goes to opioids. And then when they can't find opioids, they turn to heroin because it's cheaper, and then heroin's laced with fentanyl, which a speck of sand can kill you. Yeah. And that's what ultimately got him in pill form. So I want people to know that that was not Jamie's life. He was taken by a sickness, a disease, and the chemical imbalance in his brain led him to that. That wasn't who he was. And uh, he was just a great, loyal, fun-loving kid um, who got taken in by something that was beyond his control. And damn, he tried to stop it, but he couldn't. Ken, thank you uh, a little bit for sharing some of his story and uh, certainly for sharing your story uh, and, and welcoming me into your home. Uh, I had a blast uh, coming here today and, and talking to you for a little bit. So thank you. Thank you. My, my pleasure. And, and Jack was a good boy, wasn't he? He was pretty quiet today. He's been hanging out. I don't know if it's good. We put him to sleep. So <laughs> good point. That is Ken Daniels joining us here on Play by Playcast. If you want more information, by the way, about Jamie Daniels and his story you can head online to jamiedanielsfoundation.org. It tells his complete story um, and how you can help in the fight against opioid addiction and uh, things like the Florida Shuffle and what, in a lot of ways, contributed to uh, Jamie's eventual loss of life. Uh, additionally, on top of that, uh, if you or somebody you know uh, has an opioid addiction or a substance addiction and needs help, uh, the National uh, helpline for that 1-800-662-4357 or you can go online samhsa.gov as well um, so I wanted to uh, quickly point out those two things and again as we mentioned off the top if you haven't seen the E60 story um, I've watched it a couple of times to be totally honest with you um, I think I've watched it two or three times um, you can go online still. If you Google Ken Daniels, it's one of the first things that pops up right now in the Google searches. Uh, it was just a couple of weeks ago that uh, E60 ran that piece uh, on a Sunday morning. So uh, do go check that out if you do not know the full story in depth. Um, it'll introduce you to, to Ken and his family a little bit more, uh, and uh, it'll open your eyes to something I really didn't know about at all in any kind of great detail. And uh, it's... It's it's wild and eye-opening um, to see exactly how uh, some people take advantage in an area that they shouldn't. Um, and it's 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 sad, and, and it's and the word Ken uses in the E60 pieces is, is it's sick. Um, so do go check out uh, that E60 story. Again, jamiedanielsfoundation.org as well for more information there. 
Uh, I do want to thank Ken again, though, for doing uh, this podcast, taking the time, welcoming me into his home. Uh, it was awesome to get to connect with him um, and, and, and knock this thing out and, uh, and have the conversation that we did. Uh, we are way over time, though, on this week's podcast, so it's time for us to get up on out of here and uh, look forward to next week, where we have a really interesting, different, and fun conversation coming your way. I make no secret of the fact on this podcast and in life and it bleeds into my broadcasting sometimes too, Uh, I am a massive pro wrestling fan. And one of the things I've wanted to dive into on this podcast is how to broadcast play-by-play of professional wrestling. What do you do like Michael Cole or like Kevin Kelly or like Jim Ross or Josh Matthews or Rich Brennan? Rich Bokini is his real name. Rich Brennan, formerly of the WWE, of NXT, of SmackDown. Rich Bokini will be our guest next week to talk about what it's like to do professional wrestling play-by-play, how they prep for it, what it's like talking with producers in your ear while it's going on, what it's like having the announce table destroyed while you're doing a broadcast when they rip your monitors out in front of you. Uh... There's a lot of interesting things to get into. We will dive into all of it next week here on PXPCast. Until then, so long. We're out of time, and we're out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.